0: Welcome to Ageless by Rescue. This podcast is devoted to exploring the science of rejuvenation, uncovering the most trusted experts, the must-have products, innovations, and technology in the field of vitality, aesthetics, new beauty, and cosmetic enhancement. Dr. Vivian Tam is a leading authority in the realm of holistic health and skincare, holding a doctorate in Chinese medicine. With a dedication to skin and hormonal health, She's renowned for her informative seminars across Australia, being the founder of Zilch Formulas, a wellness brand that brings Chinese medicine to beauty routines, and her role as the principal practitioner at Melbourne's Cosmetic Acupuncture Clinic. Dr. Tam's accolades are numerous, with credentials including a bachelor's in applied science in both Chinese medicine and human biology, and as a registered practitioner under the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency and an accredited member of the Australian Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine Association, her insights are both insightful and influential. In today's episode, we explore the profound wisdom of Chinese medicine through the lens of longevity and ageless beauty. We'll uncover how Chinese medicine illuminates the intricate connection between hormonal health and radiant skin, and how this ancient discipline provides holistic solutions For the modern individual. From the fascinating interplay between gut health and skin radiance, to practical tips for seamlessly integrating Chinese medicine practices into your daily wellness routines, my conversation with Dr. Tam will guide us on an enlightening journey towards inner and outer vibrancy. I'm so pleased to bring you this transformative conversation that may just reshape your understanding of wellness and empower you to embrace. The Wisdom of an Ancient Culture. Dr. Tony Pekus is a highly regarded clinical psychologist and postdoctoral researcher from Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Pekus is a leading authority in the realm of mental health, specialising in the treatment and research of body dysmorphic disorder, or BDD, and other intricate body image disorders. Her credentials include a Bachelor of Science with honours and a PhD in clinical psychology a testament to her unwavering commitment to advancing the field. I was introduced to Dr. Pekus's research at the Mertz presentation and project titled The Confidence to Be You. This presentation and research looked at the link between confidence and appearance through cosmetic and non-cosmetic enhancement procedures. Dr. Pekus is renowned for her pioneering research that centers around deciphering patient motivations Expectations and outcomes related to non surgical cosmetic procedures. Beyond her academic achievements, she co founded ReadyMind, an organization dedicated to developing psychological screening tools and consultations tailored for the cosmetic industry. In this fascinating conversation, you'll gain insights into Dr. Pikus's extensive research around self-acceptance and confidence when it comes to aging and appearance. We talk about the impact of social media and social norms in determining our expectations and also satisfaction from surgical and non-surgical treatments and experiences. This episode explores the vital intersection of psychology and well-being. I'm so excited to introduce you to Dr. Tony Picus on this important episode of Ageless by Rescue. Dr. Picus, I am so delighted to have you on the show. We sat together at the Mertz Confidence to Be our research presentation, and your presentation was so illuminating to me as a woman, as a mother of a teenage daughter as someone who runs a platform called Ageless, um, it was really a good sense check for me.
1: Mm, Thank you. Yeah, it was really great. It was such a great day and event, I think, talking about confidence and how that can come from cosmetic procedures, but also when we need to keep ourselves in check and be a little bit careful not to let things go too far. So I think it was nice to talk about the balance.
0: You know, with the changes to the advertising guidelines and uh, where Australia now stands with regards to um, the clinical testing that's required for cosmetic surgery it's not required uh, for non-surgical procedures that's been clarified I've had so many DMs about that like oh my goodness do I have to see a psychologist before I have uh, injector injection or filler or laser no you don't but with cosmetic surgery yes you do um But I think uh, the thing that I found most fascinating from your background and not just your presentation, but speaking to you afterwards, is that body dysmorphic disorder is something that's kind of like thrown out as a catchphrase, BDD. Uh, You'll hear about it on social media or people will kind of allude to it in conversation, but it's a serious clinical disorder.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I I sometimes get a bit frustrated with the misconceptions in the media when it does get thrown around on social media, because sometimes it can downplay the seriousness of how it actually presents clinically. So the bulk of the clients that I work with have body dysmorphic disorder, which is a psychiatric condition. um, And usually the distress around their appearance is so extreme that in some cases they're not leaving the house at all because they feel terrified to be seen by other people. You know, it really impacts their ability to work, to socialise, to date. And it's it's different to just, you know, all of us have things that we don't like about ourselves, right? Every single person has something that they could say, you know, if I could fix this, I would, or I feel a bit insecure about this thing. But with BDD, usually, you know, the emphasis on that area is much greater and they think, you know, they look... um, deformed or hideous or monstrous, the words that they often use are really extreme to describe how they look. So it can be quite different just to normal body image concerns.
0: And when it comes to uh, non-surgical procedures, which was kind of the topic of the day when we attended that uh, event, They're now, um, I guess what Mertz was saying and what the doctors who were presenting and yourself who was presenting is saying that there is an intersection between responsibility from the aesthetic practitioner or the surgeon, uh, the brands and the media that are adjacent to this industry, myself included, and the patient.
1: Yes. Yeah. Because I guess, you know, for the patient, one of the key things with BDD is that it's a distorted perception. So often the things that they're fixating on don't look the same to other people. You know, they see themselves as having a huge nose or they're fixating on a line on their forehead that other people can't really see. And so they might come to an aesthetic practitioner and ask to have that line removed or their nose proportions fixed. But it would be unethical really to go ahead with that procedure if you can't see what they're talking about. You you might say, yeah, great, I'll take your money and do what I can. But, you know, if there's nothing really to be fixed, then it's it's not right for the cosmetic practitioner to be treating right away. They need to be having a more in-depth conversation about what that person's actually looking for. Um, And I think there's a responsibility on the patient to be open about those concerns with their practitioner so that it can be an open and honest discussion as well.
0: And in the non-surgical space, there's no uh, obligation to use the psychological screening tools, which have now come into place since July 1 in Australia for uh, cosmetic cosmetic procedures. But I'm interested because one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen in this line of work was your opening slide in your presentation, which was some research conducted by uh, another company. It wasn't MERT, it was another company that linked... Uh, attractiveness physical attractiveness to a whole host of outcomes and they were I mean they range from being more likely to get a job to leaving a much more satisfactory first impression on a blind date to um, being considered more dominant more intelligent uh, more um, skilled even so you know it's it's not a myth there is such a thing as pretty privilege
1: yeah yeah exactly pretty privilege the beauty premium it's been termed all these different sorts of things and there is a lot of research evidence to support it that you know the way that we look our attractiveness beauty makes a difference particularly on those first impressions and decisions that are based on those first impressions so in that
0: event isn't it I mean can you uh, I guess you can, but you see the the darker side of it. I can see how compelling it is for people to chase optimal beauty because when the upside, even on first impressions, is so potent, it's really hard to just you know separate that outcome from what what is essentially possible. And then you know you have examples on social media on um very very famous people who literally do not look anything like the features they were born with and you know i'll throw some names out there like bella hadid or some of the kardashian Jenner clan they literally don't look like their genetical composition they they have changed everything
1: yeah Yeah. And I agree with you. Like, it makes sense when there are these benefits to being beautiful, to being attractive. Of course, people want to do what they can to increase their pretty privilege. I think the danger of it is when we take that too far. So I think, you know, it makes sense that, you know, we want to put our best face forward and look as best as we possibly can often particularly with people with body dysmorphic disorder that come in they they report those statistics to me you know but you know people are more likely to get a job or they're more likely to have satisfied blind dates and that's why i need to be beautiful Um, And I think it can be taken to the extreme that, you know, we need to strive for that beauty at all costs, that we sort of forget about other things that are important sometimes in the process. And that's the risk of it. A lot of the time, you know, when people go in and get cosmetic procedures or they're engaging in beauty treatments, they report this comment that was made to them when they were six years old or eight years old. And now they're in their 20s or 30s. But that comment has really stuck with them about the way that they looked. And so these things about our appearance, you know, they affect our confidence and our self-esteem and we hold on to them. Um, And also, you know, people who have been through trauma, it's more common that people who have been through traumatic experiences are more likely to seek cosmetic procedures or feel self-conscious about their appearance as well. Sometimes it's because they feel like you know the traumas aged them, and they want to sort of get some of that time back or do something nice for themselves after they've been through a really horrible experience. And so, yeah, it's more—it's
0: kind of like the cutting all your hair off or going platinum blonde, but taken to the next level. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, in in the
0: um, research that you presented, I'd love for you to share some of the highlights of, uh, and I guess. Let's talk about um, the positive aspects, the link between feeling good, because it wasn't just looking good. It was how that treatment or that procedure or that outcome made you feel. And once you got that feeling right, that's where the glow
1: and the halo effect uh, presented. Is that correct? yeah and that research that we spoke about before about you know more attractive people getting all these benefits and blind date satisfaction and all of that I think the link there is probably also confidence that it's not just about the fact that they're more attractive is that because they maybe are more attractive or they feel good about themselves they present more confidently and therefore you know they get all these positive benefits coming because of the way that they present and certainly
0: when you work with uh, a clinical patient, is yeah. that your end goal then? Um, so not just in the BDD side, but if someone comes to you with with just presenting maybe even light versions of that, uh, is your goal
1: to guide them towards greater self-confidence? Yes, absolutely. And aesthetic treatments can be one part of that journey as well. That can be one thing that you do that helps to increase your confidence. But I want to work with people to develop confidence that's balanced, that comes from the way that they look, that comes from their abilities, their relationships, that comes from an inherent sense of self-worth, that even if you have a bad body image day or a bad hair day, you know, you're still a worthy person. You're still a good person. It doesn't mean you can't leave the house that day. And so getting your confidence from a range of sources is often what I want to work with people on.
0: There was another slide in your presentation that I remember called Sociocultural Influences. And I'd love for you to explain that concept and how it relates to confidence and how it relates to uh, the feedback that we get around an enhancement of our appearance.
1: Yeah. So sociocultural influences, I guess, taps into some of that pretty privilege that we spoke about before that for you know a long time, there's been this emphasis on being beautiful, being thin, although even that's changed over the years. We go through stages of, you know, curvy's in and thinners in and curvy's in and same with, you know, different beauty trends, they change over time. And so those beauty trends can have an impact on the way that people are perceiving themselves. So that could be one sociocultural influence. Um, and what's considered popular who's who are the celebrities and the influences that we're all looking up to at a particular time as well so like the Kardashians every time they get a new procedure everyone wants to jump on board with that I've got to jump
0: in here and say something that I saw and I would love your opinion on this I saw um, the advancements in AI where AI had generated influences. And they had set up social media accounts for these AI-generated images of uh, influencers. And they were kind of mid-journey. They walk, they talk, they were in social settings, they were in group settings. And it was indetectable um, whether they were real or AI-generated. And they were some of the best-looking men and women I have seen in my life. and I. Knowing that I was looking at an AI generated image, I, as a nearly 50 year old woman who is well versed in all of this, who attends these seminars, who speaks to professionals all the time for my job, Mm -hmm. there was a part of my brain that coveted that appearance, that coveted that skin tone and quality, that beautiful, um, hair, that mm. perfect bone structure, that youthfulness, and I thought, oh, oh this is going to be really problematic because it's one thing to want to emulate a social media influencer or an actor or an actress who is a real human being, but it is a whole other uh, ball of dice to want to look like an AI-generated perfect image, and it's here.
1: Yeah. yeah, it scares me as well. I've also been seeing a few of those AI generated influences online. And it's terrifying. Because exactly that, you know, we all look at that and think, oh, my gosh, you know, I wish I could look like that. But I don't think, you know, aesthetic medicine's not advanced enough to make people look like and an you AI. You don't generator. want
0: it to be. You don't want it to be that.
1: <laughs> no. But it's
0: going to change the norm. And that's, that's the thing that scared me the most. Because again I'm not so worried about myself because I'm kind of you know I I have life experience my frontal cortex is closed you know all all of those things but I I think about as you know next generation of young women and young men who are Mm -hmm. already under so much pressure and they have so many more uh input sources for what they should look like we certainly did I'm older than you but I certainly did you certainly did um but now, if they're also comp- competing with an AI generated image, it's that's nuts.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you were asking about some of the findings from the Mertz research about these sociocultural influences. It's interesting that you bring up the age differences. Because what what came out was that everyone, you know, across the age groups, under 30s, 30 to 50, over 50, they all said, you know, it's important to be physically attractive in our society and that physical attractiveness makes life easier. That was pretty much agreement with that across the board. But where it differed was, you know, society's beauty standards of how I should look affects the way that I feel about myself and my appearance that influence was the strongest for now. under oh, yeah. thirties. As people got older, they were able to kind of build up some resilience to that. They recognize, yes, yeah, society thinks it's important to look good and it is. And I like to look good, but it, you know, it's it's not affecting how I feel about myself as much on a daily basis, but certainly that younger age group who are growing up with these AI images and filters and all of that are really vulnerable to feeling quite self conscious about their appearance online Well, we see it. I mean, I work in the beauty industry. As I said, my background is, you know, in
0: uh, cosmetics and beauty and luxury. And now, you know, this side of the media, um, I talk about longevity, cellular wellness, um, aesthetics, Mm -hmm. the new science of beauty and how to look and feel uh, better for longer. And so I guess even though the research shows that as you get older, you're less likely to be influenced by the socio-cultural pressure, it still carries with you. And I noticed that in the Mertz um, campaign and the research that they did. So what they did is they um, paired up uh, aesthetic doctors with patients and they had, a I think it was a one-year journey, aesthetic journey that so they had the psychological assessment. They had the consultation with the doctor about, you know, where they were at, why they felt that they would like to have some physical enhancement. The doctor worked with them to provide the um, aesthetic care, and then the results were revealed to the patient, and then the their psychological um, happiness with it was measured. Am I correct? Is that the...? Yeah, exactly. Was that the process? And I'm wondering, since you worked kind of on the the uh, behind the scenes of it, what was the what was the overall um feeling that you noticed as a clinical psychologist from the impact of improving their appearance through aesthetics?
1: Well, you could see it. I unfortunately didn't get the chance to meet these people in person, but I got to obviously review the videos and you could see it in the videos, you know, the moment that they looked at themselves and they saw the final product. There was just this this enormous sense of relief, you know, feel maybe a confidence boost. They just, it was almost like a weight off their shoulders, maybe for some things that had been them for a while. Yes. Um, And, you know, for people, some of the people had spoken about, you know, difficult things that had happened and they'd been through COVID and they'd been feeling pretty crappy about themselves. And then after this treatment, they just had the opportunity to see themselves maybe for a moment, how other people see them even. Because when we look at ourselves, often we're stuck in the self-criticism and we see ourselves really negatively. And then I think in this campaign, they were able to see, you know, this before and after and this big difference. Um, and that really was like a big confidence boost for them after a difficult period that they had had.
0: So I'm going to ask you a, a devil's advocate question because we all remember, it's kind of like we all remember your first time. And I I certainly remember, you know, the first aesthetic Treatment that I had, it is like it's like mother's milk. It is so intoxicating. You really can't believe the difference. And or if it's something that's very specific, so I'll, I'll share with you. I've had two rhinoplasties. The first one I had was before I turned eighteen, and then I had to have a revision one because my skull, my uh, face changed and grew, mm. so I had to have a, a correction um when I maybe seven years later. So the last one I had was when I was 25 and the first one I had was when I was 17. Mm-hmm. And over the years, um, my, the shape of my nose has changed. Obviously your skull changes and your uh, septum changes. And so my aesthetic physician has given me what is known as a liquid nose job, mm-hmm. which is liquid rhinoplasty using filler to correct any deviation in the uh, in the curve or, And the first time that I had um, this treatment, it was as gratifying as when I had surgery. And I can tell you, I was walking on air. And I've had it another two times over the past, I want to say eight years. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's just me, but there's been a diminishing return on excitement, I'm going to call it. Yeah. from this treatment which I don't have all the time and recently I went to the same doctor that I see for all my treatments and I was picking on a particular area under my eyes and he stopped me and he said okay we're not going to do that because that's an imaginary fault in your mind and I'm not going to treat that because it actually doesn't need to be treated and I'm I'm wondering what we can do if you have some expert insights on how we can self-regulate.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that experience that you're talking about is so common when you're getting particularly non-surgical procedures where there's sort of repeated treatments or maintenance treatments over time. It's called perception drift, essentially. So you forget what you look like when you started or before you started the journey. And so the first treatment you get, obviously you get the biggest difference because you go maybe from nothing or from a baseline to the improvement of the treatment. And that's where people have the biggest confidence boost, the biggest dopamine hit almost in the- the
0: 100%,
1: yes. Yeah. But then the next time, especially if it's a maintenance treatment, You don't want to get that big difference again the same time because you don't want to make your appearance look drastically different every time you get the procedure. Because if you do, that's when you start to look a bit distorted or a bit strange or you drift away from what you originally started with. So ideally, you know, your injector or whoever you're seeing is doing something quite subtle to maintain the results so you don't see as big a difference but the other thing that happens in your brain is your brain adjusts to your new appearance and so that becomes the new normal
0: and I want to say an example of that uh, that's you know being talked about a lot um is the cast of just and just like that which is the sex in the city reboot and when that show came on air um And the characters that we have watched on a million reruns when they were in their 30s, but we've still got them, I guess, implanted in our mind as 30-year-old women who've just moved to New York City for the first time. And then they come on the screen as 50-something-year-old women. They've played with aesthetic and surgical procedures to different degrees. And then it was a pylon. There was a social media pylon of, oh, my goodness, what have they done? Why did they? Who did this? But the thing is, to me, that was also, uh, if if I can use the word and correct me if I'm using it incorrectly, slightly dysmorphic from a viewer perspective because mm. we, we'd we forgotten that, that, you know, two decades had passed.
1: Yes. Yeah, we're not seeing the change happen slowly over time. It was the drastic difference from then till now. Um, And I think we were talking about sociocultural influences before. Another big sociocultural influence is this perception of, you know, as you age, you become less relevant or less important in society. Yes, that
0: was such an interesting part of the research.
1: Yeah. And that was something I mentioned, you know, that the younger group were more impacted by the beauty ideals and wanting to look attractive. But certainly, you know, as you got above 30 and into your 50s, they were more impacted by this belief that, you know, as you get older. You're you're less relevant in society, and so we need to hold on to our youth.
0: I noticed that with the men in the Mertz campaign. Yeah, that was to me that that really touched my heart to to watch that um, absolute uplift and confidence, um, because they did feel um, that they'd recaptured some sort of relevance. It's a, it's a, actually interesting. You're you're absolutely right. That was the. The nuance there, that they suddenly felt like they were visible in society again, that they weren't counted out. And there were a couple of the women too who'd perhaps you know pursued um, and another aspect of their life, so maybe they'd dropped out of uh, their career to raise children for a certain number of years, and then they were re-entering the workforce, and they felt physically that they'd lost some of their social relevance and social currency. And then yeah. the the uh, aesthetic procedures that they had brought them back in line.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so it's where that, that happens that we can see not just benefits for confidence, but also benefits sometimes for your professional life and your professional performance and your social life because people feel like, you know, I can be seen again, which I think is is terrible from a society perspective that people feel like they they need to and that we have that bias. But I do think that's something that these treatments gave to the people that we saw in the Mertz um, confidence campaign, that it gave them that feeling of being visible again or being able to put that put themselves out there again. And we see that in just like that as well, which is why I love
0: very much.
1: Yeah, the other thing that I wanted to ask uh,
0: your opinion on, uh, again, it comes from the videos that we watched at that presentation is what happens when, so, you know, we follow the journey of these people who are perhaps having these treatments for the very first time and, you know, they they find that they are looking better. The thing that I thought was interesting and definitely it plays with the conversations that I have with people my age is in your head, often you feel a lot younger than maybe you're presenting to the world and that's one of the reasons that a lot of people like to have the aesthetic procedures, but but also will even dress a certain way or style their hair or makeup a certain way. And because they feel that there's an incongruence between how they feel in their heart and how they perceive themselves in their head, and what the outside world sees. And I'm wondering, as a clinical psychologist, do you think that's an unhealthy chasm? Or do you think that that's quite normal and nice to embrace?
1: Mm, I think it's a really normal thing. Like whenever we have that incongruence in various areas of our life, you know, if it's attractiveness, if there's a way we feel like we would like to look or our ideal self that we're not living up to, it's natural that we look for ways to sort of narrow that gap and and bring it back together again. So I think in that way, if, you know, you're feeling youthful and you're feeling, you know, you feel like your, your appearance isn't reflecting that of course, you know, look for ways to bring that more congruent, more more congruence into your life and to embrace the identity that you feel like you should have. I think, you know, obviously everything can be taken to the extreme, but I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with that in wanting to look on the outside, how you're feeling on the inside.
0: Your research also talked about self-assessment and other assessment. Can you, can you share some um, insight into that part of your research?
1: Yeah. So one of the interesting things with the Mertz research campaign, I think was one of the most um, astounding statistics that I saw was that 98% of people who had had injectables reported improvements in self-confidence, which is huge. That was almost everyone felt like they had either slightly or greatly improved their confidence. Um, And they also, as well as that, there were improvements in self-esteem and happiness in general. But what I've always been really interested in is when I see that, I'm like, yeah, great. You know, they're feeling better. But I wonder if other people notice that change in you as well. Um, and so I reported on the some research by Stephen, Dayan and colleagues. Yes. Uh, Yes. And so they essentially showed pictures of people before and after getting injectable treatments and asked observers to rate, you know, who would you perceive as being more attractive or having better social skills or being more intelligent or kind. And people post-treatment were often rated as being, you know, kinder, healthier, more trustworthy, more friendly. I
0: know that kind of blows my mind because, you know, it goes back to what we started the conversation with: is that there is definitely that overlay, and so you can see why society. And you can say, I mean, what is the spend? It's something like one point one billion dollars was spent in yeah. in physical enhancement procedures, and of that, I think three hundred fifty million of it was non-surgical um, enhancement. So it, it's a it's a big business, and it's really easy to kind of for lack of a better word, poo-poo it. But mm-hmm. the the science and the research points to the fact that, yeah, unfortunately or unfortunately, um, that boost in confidence, that enhanced physical appearance, does open more doors. That does result in a different internal and external validation.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, we can't deny that. The fact is, this is the society we live in, we have these sociocultural influences that mean that attractiveness matters. And the, you know, the way we look makes a difference. And so, of course, in turn, getting aesthetic treatments can impact our self confidence and the way that we're perceived by others. So Um, I think that the
0: interesting thing that, you know, um, your research, for me, uncovered is, If that's the case and that's an absolute and it's been proven, then surely the best way to kind of manage uh, the health, the healthiness of seeking beauty and is to give more examples of a variation of beauty ideals. Because then that way we're not all gunning for that AI generated perfect, you know, buxom or flat chested blonde or brunette. Uh, AI model of standard definition of beauty. So if the media, if um, the society embraces multiple examples of what beautiful looks like, then even if we are seeking to improve our appearance, both for our own internal confidence and external validation, there's more than one way to look.
1: Yes. And I love that about the Mertz campaign as well, because one of the main reasons they started this campaign and Woodrow Wilson from Clinical Imaging was really passionate about it was that, you know, whenever you saw these before and after photos that were used in presentations and advertising it was always stock photos of people who already looked quite perfect to begin with. And then it's like, well, you can't really tell the difference of what the aesthetic treatment did because they looked great. And this oh, was they just- were doctored.
0: They were like fake photos where exactly. they, which which was disgusting. So I'm actually thrilled that there's been some rules around that.
1: Yeah, and then in this campaign, what it was was it just showcasing normal, regular people wanting to look like a better version of themselves, not wanting to look like someone else. And I think that was really powerful. And seeing the impact that that unique beauty for them could make a difference wasn't looking like an influencer or looking like a celebrity it was just like I just want to look like a better version of me Um, and I think like what you're saying if we can showcase that if there are diverse ways to be beautiful to be attractive whatever that means for the individual I think that's a really nice direction for the industry to go in and let's
0: while I have the pleasure of having you on my show um, let's talk about body dysmorphic disorder in the context of weight because I'm sure that you see a lot of patients uh, in that. I know you specialize in non-surgical procedures, but you must also see a lot of patients.
1: Absolutely. And I think there can be um, a little bit of confusion sometimes between body dysmorphic disorder and eating disorders, because often when the focus is on weight and shape, and there's some kind of disordered eating or dieting or exercise present, it's probably more likely an eating disorder diagnosis. So, body dysmorphic disorder tends to be mainly focused on like skin and facial features and hair. Yes. And that's one thing I find comes up in the media a lot when they're talking about body dysmorphia. I'll read the article and it will usually be sort of an, an eating disorder type presentation instead. Very
0: good. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for making that distinction. So, uh, Let's assume that the uh, that we're not talking about an eating disordered person, yeah. but we're talking about truly uh, a body dysmorphic um, uh, client, yeah. and and I guess how that would uh, present is that when they start focusing on individual parts of their body, so they become fixated with their breasts, for example, that they they're not perfect or they're strange shape or they become fixated with the um length of their neck because you do hear about some really strange fixations.
1: Yeah. And often it's, you know, a piece of evidence or information that they've read online, like, you know, how long the filtrum should be or something, the, the perfect number yes. of centimeters. <sighs> And then that's the number that they fixate on, and then they might measure it and say, "Oh, mine's one cent, well, a millimeter, actually, a millimeter short." And now that's a problem. I need to fix that." And so it's usually you know, something they've heard or a comment that's been made about their appearance before that then can develop into this obsession or fixation. And you're but abs-
0: all a bit like mm-hmm. no one is immune. And you have to be like in a pretty perfect state of mind always to push out all of this social messaging all of this validation that you get externally um you, you really have to be of extremely sound mind <laughs> um and I don't know I mean I can only speak for myself i I definitely am not you know a bad hair day can unravel a day for me and that and that's the truth you know i I will if I'm feeling really physically unprepared to face the world, um, it's not going to be a great day to like host a podcast.
1: <laughs> well, your hair looks fantastic today. Oh,
0: wow, <laughs> That's why we're recording.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yes, definitely. We all have those things. We all have those insecurities But so, you know, I have days like that as well, where I look in the mirror and I can't find an outfit and I'm feeling insecure and gets to the point where you've tried 20 different outfits on and you're like, oh, I don't even want to go anymore. It's not yeah. worth it. Yeah. And so we all have that. Um, I think the extent of it when it comes to body dysmorphic disorder tends to be more extreme because most people, you know, in a kind of a healthy state of mind, you might say, yeah, I hate how my hair looks today, but you know, I can't cancel all the events on that I have to do. So I'm just going to go anyway. I'm not going to feel great about my hair. It's a bad hair day, but I'm just going to get on with it. Whereas often with BDD, it's really hard to actually do that. It's you know, I'm, I, I can't leave the house today because of how it looks.
0: And I ask you, can you develop BDD without a traumatic experience? Because you noted some, you know, some of the reasons why you might get BDD. But can overexposure to messaging that's, um, you know, quite stressful around appearance or quite emphatic or, uh, or biased around appearance, can constant exposure to that Take a normal mentally, I mean whatever normal is these days, or ever it was. Can it trip you into body dysmorphic disorder?
1: Yeah, of course. So trauma is common in people with BDD, but is not a necessary condition. It can be just you know societal influences, social media. I think we see there's a study that reported sixteen percent of cosmetic injectors themselves have BDD. And, you know, we don't know if that's because they've had it beforehand or it's just being immersed in that world where you're constantly talking about attractiveness and, you know, making yourself more and more beautiful that that can start to impact people. Absolutely. Um, And also there's a genetic. That's really
0: interesting. Wow. Yeah. Do you know what? It's so true because you do. I certainly do. I judge the outcome of my procedure by looking around the clinic and I think, okay, everyone here looks beautiful yet normal i'm safe here
1: yes yeah and so and they know that you know injectors know that their aesthetic is being judged by their potential clients and so there's a lot of pressure for them to also look good and you know to be their own advertising and that can start to impact the way that you feel about yourself too so what what
0: can we do as normal people um to avoid that decline in satisfaction from the aesthetic treatments that we're having to keep a a check and maybe like have a few um, red flags, for lack of a better word, that we can just keep an eye on uh, when it comes to our own view of how we're aging, what we look like, how we present to the world.
1: I think good before and after photography is really important in that process. So even, you know, having photos before you start your aesthetic journey so that you can go back and compare to that. So not just before and afters for every treatment you have, but even just like from the very beginning, I think that can be a useful reminder for people. If you notice yourself starting to think, oh, you know, I've improved this area. What else can I do next? Or this could be, you know, tweaked a little bit more to go back and look kind of where you started and how far you came, I think. really
0: good. And you know, it's funny you should say that because sometimes in the before and after, the clinical before and afters that I get at All Saints, which is where I go with Dr. Joseph. And, you know, I've been going there for years now, nearly 10 years. Mm. When I first get the before shots, I think, oh, I look so awful. And the after is so amazing. But since I've been going there for so many years, now I look back at my befores, from seven or eight years ago, and I
1: go, Wow, I look great right there. <laughs> yes. And we all do that with f- photos. I uh-huh. often talk to my clients about that as well because they hate being in photographs and hate what they look like. And then They'll look back on photos from five years ago, seven years ago, and be like, oh, I wish I appreciated what I looked like back then. But at the time, they hated what they looked like in that photo. <laughs> and, and you so-
0: pick and you nitpick like really very, very specific things that you hate about a particular photo. And then you go back to it exactly like you said, you know, maybe because you've aged or maybe because you've kind of not fixated or you're not in that mood or with that particular phase of your life that's kind of distorting how you feel about yourself. And you go, you know what? That version of me looks, she just looks like a really happy person in that photo. And I like that photo.
1: Yeah. So other things when it comes to that, you know, perception drift and keeping yourself in check, I think is, you know, when you're looking in the mirror after you've had treatments, trying to stand like an arm's length away from the mirror, not standing too close up. Because I think as soon as you stand close up and you start to scrutinize things, you start to identify little things that other people would never notice about you. And so, you know, keeping a distance and keeping the amount of time you spend looking at yourself in check can also be helpful. So, you know, doing, you know, being in the mirror for when you need to, if you're doing your hair, doing your makeup, but then apart from that, really trying to kind of set some limits on the amount of time you're spending, just scrutinizing your appearance. Because if we look for it, we'll find anything to fix. And so step away from the mirror and rather engage with other things, you know, be with your friends, be with your family, do things that you enjoy. And all of that can help broaden our confidence outside of our appearance as well.
0: And your thoughts on using filtering and AI generated, you know, because now you can get your LinkedIn photo generated by AI, you can have um AI generate a suite of images which are kind of optimized so that's even beyond filtering that we've been doing um, what are your thoughts on on that
1: yeah I think you know it's natural that people want to do it again it's about that putting their best face forward and you know being the most secure version of themselves that they put up online um However, what we do see is when people use filters and those AI images, the impact tends to be that as soon as they take the filter off or they step away and look at themselves in the mirror, they feel much more critical, much more negative about themselves because now they've seen this idealized artificial version. Um, And so usually it can contribute to that low self-esteem and confidence. So as much as possible, I think it's better to, to not use the filters and just get used to seeing yourself as you are. Um, because there's an exposure effect of that. We get more comfortable with our appearance if we're seeing ourselves, you know, naturally or even just with makeup on, rather than seeing this edited airbrushed version, which then makes us feel like our natural appearance is problematic.
0: It's funny you should say that because I decided maybe a year ago that I would balance my social media content with around 50% of it being with no makeup on. I don't use filters. I Probably because they were so depressing to me, because exactly as you said, you know, once the filter was off, it was like, oh God, I don't like how I look. So I just thought, okay, no filters ever. That's my rule, so that I don't have that disconnect afterwards. But I did decide that I was going to share lots of content without makeup on. And it did actually impact my own level of comfort and happiness with just plain old me. And I became far less critical from the exposure to reality in the same way that exposure to um, an example I'll give it's uh, is with hair. So ever since I was 19, I had my hair done twice a week at the hairdresser. I'm now 49. And during the pandemic, when you couldn't have your hairdresser come and do your hair or couldn't go to the salon, I was forced to face the reality of my thick unruly Iranian hair that I had to manage myself. And at first, it was actually the most problematic aspect of the pandemic for me, because it was just so different to how I had managed my appearance for decades. And then as I leaned into it, I thought, I actually like this untizzed up version of me. And now I have definitely reduced my reliance on having to have perfectly blown out hair. I Before I used to not even be able to go on holidays without booking hairdressing appointments ahead of time. So I definitely suffered with that dysmorphic kind of version of what's acceptable. Like I am not acceptable if I have that natural hair. So anyway, pleased to say that I can go out with natural hair without any discomfort. And I also enjoy having my hair blown out but I can go both ways. And the same now I'm finding my feet with no makeup days, full glam days.
1: And that's exactly, you know, a perfect place to be in when it comes to beauty treatments and aesthetic treatments and any of those sorts of things that, you know, I like to do it because it makes me feel good. And, you know, you might have a preference of having your hair done, but if you can't do it for whatever reason it's not going to stop you from living your life because you know you know that you're okay without it you know people still care about you you're still worthy you're still acceptable whether you've got your hair curly or straight or blown out I mean or... I
0: actually remember uh, I was going on a holiday to Cuba and being so distressed that I couldn't find a hair salon before yeah. arriving there I mean that's that's actually ridiculous that's stupid So, and, you know, I did find a hairstylist in Cuba when I got there, but that's a really, that you, you know, you've jumped the shark when that's a consideration in your enjoyment of an amazing uh, travel opportunity. So Mm -hmm. I do know that I used to go way too much to, and so I'm trying to undo some of those things. And I even did a little experiment on not having Botox for double the length of time in between appointments. Again, because I wanted to just stretch out my reliance on that personal feedback that I gave myself on how I looked. And once I kind of got past the discomfort of that expectation that I was meant to look a certain way, it didn't matter at all. It didn't matter. I prefer
1: myself with a full face of filler and Botox, but I can live without it. Exactly. And I actually did some research where I was tracking how people were feeling about their body image throughout the pandemic. And one of the very first surveys that I did in, I think it was in May, 2020 was about beauty treatments and how people were coping without their Botox and their fillers and their nails and their hair. And the distress levels were high. Like lots of people were feeling how you were feeling, you know, can't believe I can't get these routine treatments. But then as time went on, it was exactly that, that exposure effect. It was like, actually, this is kind of nice now, you know, I've got a little bit of extra money, I've, you know, saved a bit of time, you know, there are all of these things that they've now adjusted to and maybe didn't feel like they needed as much as they thought they did.
0: Well, it was just such a joy to have this conversation with you. I could speak to you about this subject again and again and in fact we might revisit this because I'd like to have this conversation in the context of surgery, perhaps we could have that conversation another time. But thank you so much. And I truly appreciate you um, sharing your valuable insights and also some how-tos on how we can possibly make sure we don't trip into something that's more problematic and then we can have the confidence
1: just to be ourselves. My pleasure. It was so lovely talking to you as well. And I would love to come back and chat to you again soon. Thank you so much, Dr. Pickers.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please share and rate this episode. I'd love that.